This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, we have Jay Levy, the president and CEO of Survey USA, a national polling company. Levy will talk about some of his latest presidential polls in battleground states and explain why people are skeptical of polls. Also, I'll ruminate on Fleetwood Mac and Van Halen, why they're popular again, and what they mean to me. And now, The Nexus. Jay Levy is the president and chief executive officer of Survey USA, a nationwide survey research firm that does polling in all 50 states with results that appear on TV stations in dozens of media markets. The popular polling analyst site 538 gives Survey USA a grade of an A based on its accuracy in previous polls matching the eventual outcome. With the 2020 election coming down to its final weeks, I wanted to discuss my passion for polling with someone who has been a leader in this industry. Jay Levy, welcome to the Nexus. How are you, Art? I am good. Thanks for being here. Uh, Let's start off by talking about the results from your two most recent polls in battleground states. We'll start with the brand new poll in Georgia, which has proven to be the swing state few expected in 2020. For president, what's the story? Well, we've got uh, Biden up by two points, but other pollsters have it either tied or perhaps with a one point advantage for Trump. So really, it's turned out that at this moment in the contest, Georgia is the quintessential bellwether state, even more so than North Carolina, which we might speak about in a moment. Georgia is close enough that it really is a hold your breath situation. And there is no exact powerful tailwind for Biden yet in Georgia, as he's experiencing in some of the other battleground states. There are two other contests on the ballot in Georgia, so it makes it a whirlwind of activity if you're in that state, meaning it's not simply that attention is focused on Biden and Trump. There's so much else going on in Georgia right now that the picture is a little dustier and cloudier than perhaps elsewhere. But isn't it a surprise in a certain way that Georgia, which I think most of the country considers to be, quote, a deep red state, is going for Biden at all? I mean, I, I, Alabama certainly isn't. Neighboring states like Louisiana and, and, and so forth, Arkansas, I mean, they're, they're very much in the tank for Trump, so to speak. So why Georgia? So let's look at Atlanta and how it's become this international destination. You know, the Olympics were there. People all over the world saw it. It has grown to become a thriving metropolis and credit to its airport builders uh, two decades ago. And what you have happening is that the old South is gradually in Georgia dying and the new South is moving in and the outer belts and the outer belts and the outer belts that keep getting built around Atlanta to accommodate the sprawl is what is driving the long-term societal trend in that state. Unfortunately, I don't think long-term there is anything the Republicans can look to in Georgia that says we're going to get 
the old South back. We're going to get the Republican domination that we have taken for granted for much of the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, instead, you have a, uh, a modernization of states like Georgia and the mix of individuals who are coming, mostly from the northern states, since there are only a few to, to the south of Georgia, are uh, more progressive uh, than traditional conservatives anyway. Some may be perfectly moderate, but that means they're open to both uh, Democrat and Republican ideas and willing to listen. And that means you end up with this steady erosion in Republican support if you look at it over a time series plot. And who knows whether 2020 will be the year when Georgia finally elects or assume he votes for a Democratic president or if it takes till 2024 or 2028. But I really would say societally, it's inevitable. So just drawing upon that for a second, are you saying that if and I know it's speculative, but if an Arkansas or an Alabama has an influx of industry and northerners and and such that those states could flip eventually too is that what you're detecting so the circumstances in alabama are unique but they have a democratic senator right now now the issue there is whether they can turn themselves into a space frontier. They had some uh, uh, aerospace uh, success in Alabama, sort of modernizing the look and outside appeal of that state. Uh, They really need to turn some portion of that state. I'm saying if this is their goal, and I'm not suggesting it is, if they want to turn that state into a big metropolitan thriving urban center that attracts talent from all over the world. They have it within their ability to do so by just making it attractive for business to come there. And that eventually what's going to come there is not necessarily people who want to refight the civil war, but people who want to move on and live in the 21st century. And if that happens, then you will see the progression of uh, liberal values, you know, begin to seed in. I don't mean it happens overnight. It happens over decades, but seed in and eventually those states could themselves move to the left. Hmm, Interesting. Staying in Georgia for a moment. um, How about the Senate races? And I say that plural, there are two of them. Uh, How are they doing in, in your polling? So one is really easy to talk about because it's a very traditional Senate race. There's an incumbent Republican, Purdue, uh, running against a challenger, Ossoff, who has run for statewide office uh, in uh, run for the House of Representatives in uh, Georgia before. Um, Most of the polls have Purdue up by a couple of points, and he may at this moment have a slight advantage. That would be a hold, not a flip, if uh, Purdue holds the seat for uh, the Republican Party. But Ossoff is running quite strong, and if there is, in fact, some sort of a Democrat surge, or let me say it a little more subtly, the across the board, and specifically in Georgia as well, Republicans are counting on a late vote. And what I mean by that is the Republicans uh, make no bones about the fact that they have been coached by the president to say, I'm going to vote on election day in person, just as I always have. So if the skies are fair over Georgia on election day and there's no hurricane and there's no uh, unforeseen spike in uh, the pandemic that scares Georgians from staying home on election day, November 3rd, then 
then you may see a very, very tight race and Purdue may in fact hold the seat. But if anything happens to dampen turnout on election day, November 3rd, that benefits the Democrats enormously because they have all the early momentum. They have a sustained drive to get people to the polls at the end of September and now in the early part of October. So that's Senate race number one. Senate race number two, more complicated because the Republican Johnny Isaacson uh, stepped down for health reasons and the Republican governor named uh, Loeffler to be his interim replacement until a special election could be held. And this now, uh, coinciding with the general election on November 3rd, is the special election to fill Johnny Isaacson's seat, which the Republican Loeffler is sitting in right now. But it's much more of a free-for-all because of Georgia law. Georgia law allows for multiple candidates to be on the ballot from different parties, I'm sorry, including from the same party. So you have a couple Democrats, a couple Republicans, and a couple third-party candidates, 20 candidates in all, mm. on the ballot. And Georgia is unique in its own you know, idiosyncratic way and says that if on election day, November 3rd, no one of those candidates gets to 50%, an automatic runoff happens between the top two vote getters. So you have a lot of jockeying right now. What has that race is very both fluid and combustible, meaning different polls, depending on what day of the week they were released on, either have a Democrat Warnock ahead right now, some by as much as 17 points. That's probably improbable. We have Warnock ahead by four points over a Republican, uh, Loeffler, and then uh, other polls have it tighter still and and have it sort of a three-way free-for-all. Well, you can divide 100 by three, and obviously if there's three candidates that are clustered, no one of them is going to get to 50% and there will be art a runoff. Hmm. So now the question becomes, will the top two finishers be both Republicans, in which case the seat is safe for the Republican Party, no matter which of the two survives in the runoff? Will both of the top two finishers be Democrats? Conceivable, but unlikely. And that would, of course, be a pickup for the Democrats if they picked up that seat. Or much more likely is that you're going to have one of the Democrats emerge, probably Warnock at this moment, and one of the Republicans emerge. So if you're a Republican and your name is not Loeffler, which is to say she's the incumbent Republican, and you need to make yourself suddenly in the news, you're the guy, Collins, the representative Republican representative from Georgia, who decided this week that the way that he would leapfrog Loeffler in the Senate contest was by passing a, or in, in, uh, announcing a resolution in the House of Representatives that Nancy Pelosi was infirm and needed to step down as Speaker of the House. Hmm. So, you know, you could say whether that's a legitimate concern or a publicity stunt depends on, I guess, which side your toast is buttered. But that was obviously his way of getting on the front page of the Georgia newspapers and at the top of the newscast in the Georgia uh, TV stations so that he could perhaps steal second place from the incumbent Loeffler and advance to the runoff uh, and face the uh, Democrat Warnock. Interesting. God, that is that is a melee if I've ever heard one. I thought Louisiana was bad, but that's 
sounds even more complicated. No, it, it is real three-dimensional chess in Georgia right now for that special election seat. <laughs> Unbelievable. That's uh, So in a, I believe, less complicated situation, we have another conservative state to turn to, which is North Carolina. And that's been thrust into the spotlight because of how close it's been this year. I mean, Obama won there in 2008. He barely lost there in 2012. And then Trump narrowly won in 2016. Uh, remarkably, I've seen about 10 polls come out of North Carolina this past week, at least. What's going on there in your polling? So what has attracted the attention like sort of flies to a uh, open jar of jelly uh, <laughs> is that within the last few days, the Democrat running for the United States Senate against the incumbent Republican Tom Tillis, the Democrat's name is Cunningham, was exposed for having had a extramarital both sexting and apparently in-person uh, relationship. And there are plenty of people, regardless of whether you live in the far north and the liberal west or the deep south, who find infidelity, uh, you know, a sin and who take exception to such a thing. So I think the pollsters all descended basically to see if the Democrat Cunningham, who had been showing a small but steady lead against Tillis, had collapsed as a result of his first acknowledgement, begrudging acknowledgement of the sexting and then ultimate on-camera apology of the sexting, which he did a few days after that. Quite the contrary to what any uh, intuition would have told you, uh, Cunningham actually, the Democrat, gained ground after the sexting scandal was revealed. And that has been true in not just our polling, uh, but across the board in other polling in that state. And it really is a wonderful window into culture in 2020 uh, in sort of the modern South and how it affects just everyday life, having nothing uniquely to do with Biden and Trump. Isn't that something? I mean, I've seen people say that the Access Hollywood tape of 2016 just changed everything. And now nothing's as big a deal in sex scandals as it used to be. I mean, is that somewhat possible? When you think back on the, quote, good old days, close quote, when it, all it took was one photograph of a woman on Gary Hart's lap, <laughs> you know, to cause him to drop out of the race for the presidency. I mean, we live in an extraordinarily different world now. And now it's almost like the candidates, uh, I don't know, I can't think of the right expression, but they have to be guilty of such egregious behavior in order to disqualify themselves. Now, what's actually happening in North Carolina, which is fascinating, is that you happen to have a governor's race that coincides with the presidential race and with the Senate race. So that means you have at the top of the ticket in North Carolina, the first three contests you're going to be asked to vote on, there's a tight contest for president, for governor, and for senator. And what's really interesting is the three Republicans and the three Democrats move in lockstep, even though their fates are not necessarily intertwined. And by that, I mean, the governor's contest theoretically has no connection to the United States Senate. And you would wonder why that uh, would 
sync up you know, with the presidential vote, but it, it absolutely turns out to be the case that in North Carolina right now, Biden, the Democrat running for president, is actually the weakest of the three Democrats at the top of the ticket. He's ahead on average by a couple of points. That is pretty consistent. By that, I mean there have been no recent polls that show Trump holding North Carolina for the Republicans. And as you pointed out, Art, there is at least some history of Obama taking that state in 2008. So it's not like it's never happened before, certainly within the realm of possibility that Biden wins North Carolina. Strikingly, though, the Democrat running for the United States Senate to oust the Republican Tillis is running consistently four points stronger than is Biden. Mm. There are 19 separate public opinion pollsters working in North Carolina right now. That is a barometer for just how pivotal those electoral votes are and just how pivotal that United States Senate seat is. So you have 19 pollsters, and I'm describing to you the average from the September polls that were taken to now, as you point out, just in the last week, this flurry of new October polling in North Carolina. Consistently, the Democrat senator runs four points ahead of Biden. And then the Democrat for governor, who is the incumbent in this case, he's four points higher than that. So there is across the board support. There may turn out, it's conceivable, to be a trifecta win for Democrats in North Carolina in 2020 November, where they take the presidential electoral votes, they flip the Senate seat, and the governor is reelected. Um, and that is a, a a profound commentary on, again, the new South crowding the old South out of tobacco country. Yeah, I mean, I was just about to say that. It sounds like the same dynamics or similar dynamics as Georgia are happening in North Carolina. And I mean, in my home state now of Virginia, where I've lived the last decade, um, that's absolutely happened. I mean, Virginia, as you know, was a reliably Republican state for generations. And now it's not even a swing state anymore. I mean, as recently as 16, I think there was a little bit of concern as to will Hillary keep the the progress of the Obama wins in 08 and 12. But in 2020, nobody cares about it. And I'm just wondering if there's a day where that's going to start to happen in uh, North Carolina, which is only one state away. So you have North Carolina, which has invested in the Research Triangle Institute, and that, again, similar to Hartsfield Airport in Georgia, you know, just as a reason to attract talent to a state, talent almost by definition sort of young, and uh, may have come from other places, other places in the country, other places outside of the country. Um, then you have uh, Charlotte still remaining a uh, hub airport where lots of people have to come and go. Uh, formerly when U.S. Air ran it, now American Airlines still has a hub there. So you have a lot of people that see Charlotte as a great base of operation, you know, a great place to live in and around. So that state, again, and, and a wonderful state, North Carolina, perhaps even more so than Georgia, to retire to, a little bit more mild, moderate on the temperature side. So you, all of those people who are retiring, again, they're not retiring from Alabama and Arkansas and Mississippi. They're retiring from north of North Carolina, where the winters are worse. So there's just this inevitable societal sociological trend to push the northerners a little bit further south. Eventually, they will turn North Carolina into perhaps never a landslide blue state, but the trends are unmistakable. There are simply not enough uh 
you know, pre-Brown v. education, North Carolinians left who, who romanticize an old South and the younger generation that's moving in uh, sees the world through totally different uh, binoculars than does the older crowd that unfortunately is passing away. Fascinating. Uh, such interesting stuff. So, and, and along those lines, um, speaking about people who are passing and, and generations changing, to me, the most interesting demographic this year is the status of those 65 years and older. I mean, with the enormous baby boom generation becoming senior citizens, there's more of this group than ever before. And they vote. So who are they leaning towards for the presidential race as you see it? Well, certainly there's a lot of discussion nationwide about Trump, who over Hillary Clinton did disproportionately well among seniors. And that may be because the seniors in 2016 were old enough to remember Bill Clinton and, you know, his transgressions while in the White House. And <laughs> the impeachment is just a fact. I mean, that you can't erase it off his, his report card. It will always be a stain. And there are people with long memories. And so compared to how Hillary Clinton did among seniors, uh, Biden across the country is doing better uh, in certain areas. Now, I'm, I need to say that in the two surveys that we released, the one in North Carolina that we just spoke about, the one in Georgia that we spoke about two minutes before that, we did not see further consolidation of Biden's support among seniors. The the movement was not there. Now, it may have already been folded into the batter and it already may have already been baked into the cake, but there was not like a precipitous further decline. And I do think speaking now just more generally than about the seniors, but the seniors being a key part of this, what everyone sort of is looking for, both Republicans and Democrats, is has Trump reached low tide? And I don't mean to imply anything other than just the obvious. The numbers are what they are. He has lost support in the last month, uh, whether that's because of the uh, first debate or because of the tax return information or because for dozens of other reasons, maybe he's insulted certain groups who, who took exception. But for whatever reason, Trump's strategy of appealing to a very, very core group of hardcore, uh, ardent right supporters has left the middle up for grabs. And that middle has drifted Biden's way. And so Trump's lead has, excuse me, his ad, uh, advantage where he had one and his disadvantage uh, has has grown, meaning his lead has shrunk and his disadvantage has grown in places where it was the case. Everyone is basically looking every day to see, okay, has that stopped yet? And is it, if it has, is there time for a turnaround? So what we do not yet see is uh, across the board, any return to Trump among the senior citizens. Uh, but the phenomenon is, is one that you described. And Joe Biden, I think, has played his hand very well, right? If you're a baseball fan, you're familiar with pitchers who rely on power and uh, outmatching their performances when they're in their 20s. Mm -hmm. But when they get to be older in, be in baseball terminology, you know, they have to be craftier and wilier and use other tricks because they can no longer have the arm strength. So Biden understands where he falls on the lifespan continuum and his 
strategy is clearly to say as little and do as little as possible hmm. to let his opponent continue to self-sabotage, which he, Trump appears to be quite good at. <laughs> and, you know, he, he I mean, right now, Biden, if Biden held his breath to Election Day, uh, barring some extraordinary event, you know, uh, the president would each day dig himself a little bit deeper and deeper into a hole and Biden would emerge victorious. Now, I'm not suggesting that's going to happen and Biden may yet say or do something profoundly dumb. There may be disclosures about things related to Biden's son that are percolating up this morning and, you know, perhaps those take root and who knows what else might happen and Trump could do something extraordinary on, uh, you know, on the good side and the race changes complexion. But right now, Biden's strategy, which is to do as little and say as little as possible, is paying dividends for him. And there is no evidence yet in today's polls, this morning's polls, as I studied them prior to us getting together, uh, there's no evidence that we've reached low tide for Trump just yet. Mm, interesting. God, it's, there's still room there. Well, one of the most repeated mantras we seem to hear this year is that the polls were wrong in 2016. Why should I believe them now? I'm sure you hear that all the time. So what do you tell people who simply don't believe you or other pollsters? Oh, they're, they should have healthy skepticism. I, I do not, uh, uh, begrudge those people any of the, uh, incredulity that they may, in fact, study our numbers and others with. Let's take a step back and sort of look at the history of research for two seconds just to put today's minute into perspective. So if you could imagine sort of a time in the 1930s and 40s when opinion research was just sort of getting its sea legs, uh, the way that research was conducted was to send out a battery, an army of pullers, and they would literally like roll one dice. And if it came up four, they would say, okay, today we're going to talk to the fourth house in from the curb. And, you know, that's how they would randomly assign. And they would go to the fourth house and ring the doorbell. And the person would say, I'm here from the Gallup organization, or I'm here for the Roper organization, or the Harris organization. And what do you think the person who answered the door uh, said? She said, well, come in, I'll make coffee because pollsters were like, oh my God, they cared enough to think what I thought. And it was like a whole big thing. And the pollster would sit down and spend 45 minutes. Sometimes the whole family would gather and it was a big deal. Then there was a period of time when uh, U.S. mailed surveys were considered preferable. And of course, you had to be literate in order to participate in a, in a written typed survey. And then in the 1970s, what became magical was that the Bell Telephone Company made it possible for pollsters for the very first time to press one and then 10 numbers and to actually reach somebody without an operator. Prior to that, you actually needed an operator for long distance. So calling from one location to uh, conduct a nationwide survey never made any sense because the long distance costs were so prohibitive. That worked perfectly in the 80s and 90s and into the turn of the century until it became the case that all of a sudden people decided they preferred a cell phone to a home phone. The beauty of home phones was a, people loved to get a call, right? If there's a song from the musical, The Music Man, the Wells Fargo wagon is a coming. Well, that's what it was like in, the, in my house growing up. When the phone rang, my sister and I fought to say, I'll get it, I'll get it. And she would yell, no, I'll get it. We would race to the telephone because only good news came. What would, you know, you, you couldn't wait to hear what was on the line. And that changed so profoundly at the millennia, turn of the millennia. And all of a sudden, all of the energy in the human species has been to prevent people from disturbing them on their telephone. 
They do not wish to be called, certainly not by pollsters, certainly not by marketers, certainly not even by their friends and relatives if they're in the middle of watching something. And even I am guilty of, you know, if my mother called or my sister called or whoever, I just let it roll to voicemail and I figure I'll time shift it and call them back when I get a minute. Well, it's hard to run a public opinion polling operation in that world. So there is this gradual transition now are to online research. Some people say it's not ready for prime time. They may be right. Others say, I'm sorry, we simply cannot survive in a world where people do not wish to answer their home telephone and uh, feel it's an intrusion and a barge in their life when we call them. So you have a mix happening in 2020, a little bit more so than was in 2016, of pollsters doing online research and some legacy pollsters still doing telephone research. And all I can assure you is that for the lion's share of those pollsters, there is truly science as an agenda, meaning there is no other agenda. Now, on the far extreme ends of the continuum, there are some pollsters who like to use polling as weapons, meaning they've weaponized polling. They figure if they release a poll that shows the Republican doing exceptionally well, that'll gain traction and perhaps increase donations for that candidate. Or on the other end of the continuum, if they show a poll with the Democrat running uniquely strongly, that'll momentarily increase donations to that candidate. But setting aside those true outliers. Most of the people who work in this profession really want their numbers to be right. They really want to put out the best possible numbers possible. And they would love the day after election day to beat their breast and say, we were right. You know, that's just human nature, right? Mm -hmm. So it is absolutely, when when I look at uh, the hit the refresh button and every 10 minutes now, certainly nowadays, there's a new important state level or national level survey having something to do with either the pandemic, the the, uh, election, uh, immigration, whatever the the topic of the day is. Um, It's so important to look and see who took it. That's number one. But more importantly, what actually was said to the respondent? A lot of times, Opinion research companies are run by statisticians. There's nothing wrong with being a statistician, but they should keep themselves away from the prose, from the actual questionnaire writing that shows up in the dialogue between the interviewer and the respondent. That is an art form, asking the questions in the most neutral, sanitary way so that an 18-year-old, an 80-year-old an English as second language person, all hear them the same way, that's a gift. And if you do that well, and if you draw your sample well, you should end up producing consistently great research. And let us pray in 2020, that will in fact be the case. There will not be in the final five, seven days of the election, as there was in 2016, you know, profound rocking disclosures that upset the apple cart and turned everybody's polls upside down. And hopefully in 2020, people will gain some restored confidence, but still with circumspection about the polling industry in general. Interesting. That, that is, I mean, it sounds almost like, and thank you very much for that um, history lesson, because it is, I, I think, imperative that people are aware of this when they start talking about polling. But I mean, it seems like, and again, I know we're, we're speculating here, and I know that you have your company and maybe don't, um, certainly can't speak for others, but what do you say to the sense then that there is so many what would be considered by a, a site like 538 
high quality polls out there now. Um, obviously, there's a lot of garbage polls, but the idea that if if all of these high quality polls sort of say the same thing. Is that something like a consensus? I mean, I know you said that we should have healthy skepticism, but can you sort of take that to the bank or what do you think? Yeah, that should give you enormous confidence in anyone else who's looking at the numbers. So if you take the pollsters who have sea legs, meaning the ones who didn't just come into business in 2020 because their previous company went out of business in 2019, but look at some companies that have been around for a while. We've been around for 30 years. You know, you sort of begin to see consensus building around their numbers. You can have additional confidence, right? If four polls in a row, and I'm always astonished when this does happen, because if you knew how how many separate things there, how many separate decisions a pollster had to make in the course of from the first moment of saying, okay, let's pull uh, what Kansas until the last second when you say I'm ready to release those results. There are so many separate decisions that get made differently by different pollsters. But then if you happen to see four polls come out by four separate organizations and they say approximately, and I'm making this up, Republican up by five, by five, by five, by four, by six, by five, you can pretty much say that's pretty good. Now, could it blow a point to the left or a point to the right on election day? Of course, but it's not going to be the Democrat winning by five. That's, I just don't think that's going to happen short of very choppy seas, right? So what we had happen in 2016, which was really, and, and, and I was just reliving this last night because a friend of mine had a birthday party on October 1st, as he does every year, and it was a big celebration, and we were all there, and people asked me on October 1st, I remember distinctly, what were Donald Trump? Trump's chances of being elected president based on the polling at that moment. And I answered truthfully. I said, zero. I was right. <laughs> Except two days later, Anthony Weiner's penis showed up on the front page of the New York's newspapers because Huma Abedin, Hillary's aide, had, you know, thoughtlessly put sensitive emails onto Anthony Weiner's computer, which got dragnetted by the FBI related to his sexting escapade with a minor. So if you had told me, well, Jay, wait, before you say Trump has zero chance, I need to tell you that two days from now, you know, uh, Huma Abedin's husband, who's a notoriously unliked, unloved individual, is going to show up on the front page tied back to Hillary. Do you want to reassess? I would have said, of course. And the good news is the minute that was on the front page, I said to the people who I was talking, well, this changes everything, which it did. And I thought it became a coin toss election at that moment. And a coin toss is what it turned out to be. So we'll see what happens in these final 19 days, Art, if there's no buffeting, if there's no fierce crashing waves that neither you nor I could have foreseen between now and uh, November 3rd, Biden right now is positioned to win. However, lots can happen and polls don't look ahead. They simply tell you what is. We don't ask people what they're going to do in the future. We ask them what they're doing now. So if we say to them in an election today, and today means today, and we go so far as to add more, we say, and you were marking your ballot right now, mm -hmm. would you vote for? And that allows us to put them in the voting booth to the greatest extent possible, have them simulate the experience of marking a real ballot. And when we do that, we get back reliable numbers that are true at the time we ask the question, but cannot factor in the unknowable, which is what's about to happen tomorrow and the next day. 
That is that is absolutely um, something that people should all be knowing about at this at this moment. Let me ask you one more question before we go. Um, does anything about the 2020 race, either for president or Senate, truly surprise you? Well, um, I uh, let's say I want to remain as neutral as I can remain, but I think that even the most honest Republican would have to acknowledge this. Uh, President Trump has made a conscious decision to make the Republican Party reflective of a group of individuals who will never be in the majority in this country. He had the opportunity. Uh, George W. Bush did it before him. George Herbert Walker Bush did it before him to broaden the appeal of the Republican Party. Uh, They use terms like compassionate conservatives and other terms that would basically welcome an independent, try and claim with a straight face that the Republicans had a big tent. Trump has clearly consciously and deliberately rejected that. He has a strategy, it may pay off, who knows, that the well from which he drew his strength in 2016 has still more water in it. And if he keeps dipping his bucket in that same well, he's going to find more voters. Maybe he succeeds. But it is difficult to imagine when your positioning is so, your rhetoric is so red hot and your positioning is so fiercely away from the moderate middle that you can attract a majority of the voters. You may never get a majority of the popular vote. And then idiosyncratically is whether you'll be able to get a a majority of the electoral vote. And Trump may succeed at doing that. But uh, it will be a sobering statement about this country that a party, for example, or I should say an individual like Joe Biden, who I don't think by anyone's definition is in fact uh, a far left radical. There, may, there is an argument to be made about whether he's being controlled by far left radicals. I, I, I listen to that every day, but I don't think Biden's history points him to be that way. So the question becomes, can a guy who is basically a centrist Democrat, you know, hold together a coalition that includes the left end of his party and the independents who are in the middle. And if so, he should be able to build a coalition and govern on it, especially if the Republicans lose control of the United States Senate because no Republican senator except Mitt Romney and Jeff Flake had the courage to speak out about Donald Trump pigeonholing the Republican Party as being the party of the extreme far right, which I don't think is in the Republicans' interest and and I, I, in the long term, and I don't think in the short term, is in Donald Trump's uh, three-week horizon interest. Right, right. No, that's that's absolutely uh, that's absolutely true, and uh, we'll see. I mean, I, I I remember hearing those same kind of um, arguments made after George H.W. Bush lost in 1992. I don't think he was nearly as narrow in his focus as Trump is, but there was still sort of this sense that Clinton had a coalition and and the first President Bush didn't, and that's why he went down to defeat. Of course, that was a different race because Ross Perot was in it and so on and so forth, but it, it's interesting how sometimes oftentimes history repeats itself 
It so does. It is, it is the greatest thing, which is you can tune in a month from now and you won't have missed that much. <laughs> um, well, you can find Survey USA polling on great TV stations nationwide, and they are seriously accurate. So thank you for sharing your insights with us, Jay Levy, and joining me in the Nexus. Be well, Art. And we will be right back. The more things change, the more they stay the same. In the past couple of weeks, music from Van Halen and Fleetwood Mac is dominating the charts. It is a time for celebration if you love the classic rock of the 70s and 80s. I think it shows a hunger for a kind of quality music that just isn't produced anymore. When everything is synths and electronic and trap and EDM, what's a guy or gal looking to hear actual guitars supposed to do? Let's talk about both of these bands, one representing a resurgence and one an end of sorts. We'll start with Fleetwood Mac. You know, Fleetwood Mac started this podcast in a way. Back in December of 2018, I appeared on a series of podcasts where I talked about what was happening with Fleetwood Mac, then on tour after the highly controversial firing of artistic leader Lindsey Buckingham. It was astonishing that the band had the gall to fire Buckingham, the progenitor of so many hits. I had a lot to say about the situation, and being a guest on the Legendary Hour inspired me to create my own podcast three months later. Right now, Dreams is number 21 on the U.S. Billboard Music Chart. Have you heard Dreams? Of course you have. The moody, evocative elegy to lost love with the preternatural lyrics, Thunder only happens when it's raining. Players only love you when they're playing. What was Stevie Nicks, the writer and lead singer on Dreams, talking about? Why, her breakup with Lindsey Buckingham, of course, the same guy she got fired from the band 41 years later, and who I talked about on a podcast all those years later. What a musical soap opera. Dallas, Dynasty, Days of Our Lives, and One Tree Hill got nothing on that. Dreams went to number one on the Billboard chart in June 1977 amidst the discord of the Knicks-Buckingham breakup. The fact that they stayed in the band together only added spice and excitement to their performances. Was the song a hit only because of the relationship drama? Not whatsoever. Dreams is something of a unicorn. There's nothing that sounded like it on the radio before it came out in 1977 or since. Its haunting, melancholy sound would have never worked a few years later in the coked-up, rah-rah 80s, yet it is remarkable and beautiful. Maybe these are the reasons that Nathan Apodaca, this random dude, made a TikTok video seemingly on a skateboard, drinking ocean spray cranberry juice, and singing a few lines of dreams. Why did he do it? Beats me. It's become the viral sensation of the fall, and that's why Dreams is number 21 on Billboard, number 48 on Spotify, and number one on the iTunes music chart. TikTok is now driving music in a way that American Idol once did. To get featured on a viral TikTok is the difference between being a has-been and bleeding edge. Stevie Nicks and Fleetwood Mac, thanks to TikTok, are the hottest musical act in America right now. I couldn't be happier. And then there's Van Halen. They also have their own dreams, the 1986 song with Sammy Hagar on lead vocals. As of this podcast, Van Halen has 22 of the top 100 songs on the iTunes chart. Uh, 
While Fleetwood Mac is still with us and having this playful reemergence, Van Halen is achieving notice because of the sad passing away of that band's leader, Eddie Van Halen, at age 65. This effectively ends the band because there's no way you can replace the man for whom the group is named for, even if his brother Alex is still with us. Van Halen has been on a decline for the last decade or so as Eddie battled health problems and David Lee Roth's voice, not very powerful to begin with, got worse and worse. I love to have friendly arguments with fellow Van Halen fans about who the best lead singer is, Sammy Hagar or David Lee Roth, but from a longevity standpoint, it would have kept the band functioning a lot more if Hagar remained on lead vocals. Even in his 70s, Stam Sammy has still got it. Don't believe me? Check out his impassioned performance of Right Now on Catalina Island last week as a tribute to his one-time band. Van Halen, for a time in the 80s, was untouchable. They had three albums in a row that were financially and culturally dominant. 1984, released in 1983, 5150 from 1986, and OU812 in 1988. It's thrilling to hear a band with a sound that's completely original and can't be replicated. That was Van Halen. To this day, I've never heard music like they produced. Another unicorn like Dreams was. To me, Van Halen will always be the summer of 1986 when I was off from grammar school before I worked and could hang around home all day if I wanted to and watch MTV. Why Can't This Be Love ruled that channel and led into Love Walks In and Dreams. Those videos, that booming guitar sound, and Sammy's operatic vocals will always be a very fond memory. Feels like a lifetime ago. Hagar would go on to an acrimonious breakup with Eddie 10 years later, and while they reunited for an ill-fated tour in 2004, things were never the same. That's what makes Eddie's passing so sad for me. I always held out hope that Sammy would rejoin and they would do a fitting farewell tour, a true blast from the past. Instead, the cancer got the best of Eddie, and it was never to be. I'm heartened that at least Eddie and Sammy privately reconciled in the last year of Eddie's life. It's awesome to have the music I live for back in vogue again. All we need now is Paul McCartney to have another hit or some sort of Led Zeppelin revival. We all have dreams, right? And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide and give us a review too. We'll see you next time and be well. 